Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Performance Anxiety, proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Our guest this episode is drummer Chris Lackanac. Chris has drummed with some legendary people like Gatemouth Brown, Papa Molly, Tab Benoit, and Adam Peters of Echo and the Bunnyman and Family of God, to name a few. But his love of New Orleans jazz and second-line drumming drove him to form his band Junko Beat with Vernon Rome and Will Snowden. This episode was an education for me in a genre of music that I was not at all familiar with, but am now deeply intrigued by. Chris tells some great stories of touring with Gatemouth, moving all over the country and playing sessions, and there's some great New Orleans jazz history in here. So there's something for everybody. Check out Junko Beat's new album, Satirifunk, on streaming services or their website, JunkoBeat.com. Subscribe, rate, and review the show, and follow us at Performance ANX on all the socials. And let's jump right into some funky stuff with Chris Lackanac and Junko Beat. All right, so I'm still rolling, so whenever you're ready, take I'm it so away. Nervous. <laughs> I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. Hey, y'all. This is Chris Lackanac coming to you from Junko Beat. So happy to do the podcast with Mark at Anxiety's Performance. And I'll try not to be too nervous, but uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for joining me, man. This is great. Yeah. Oh, pleasure. I'm, I appreciate the invite. Oh, of course, of course. I, I don't get a chance to, to do much with jazz and, and funk types of artists, people in, in those genres. Um, and not that I haven't reached out, but I just haven't had the opportunity to talk a lot. So this is going to be great for me. This is kind of, for me, this is going to be kind of a learning experience because I don't know lots about those genres in New Orleans, you know, music from New Orleans. So it's yeah. outside of country artists. More singer-songwriter or... Me? No. Oh, gosh. I, I've got a lot. I, I usually end up honestly listening to heavier stuff. Um, <laughs> but, you oh. know, I'm not... I'm not exclusive to that. You know, I'd love, like, there's a, a good, awesome guy in Morgan Gear, plays for Freakwater, but he's also got his own band, Drunken Prayer. He's definitely in the country side of things that I love. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. There's uh, there's all kinds of stuff. Black Rebel Motorcycle Club is one of my favorite bands of all time. They're, uh, they're more on the rock side. Um, uh-huh. Going the heavy spectrum is Devin Townsend. Uh, so there's, there's a whole bunch of, of, of people that I, I really enjoy listening. In fact, as, yeah. We're recording this on a Thursday. 
tomorrow I'll be releasing the episode I did with Buzz Osborne from the Melvins. Okay. So it's I got a pretty uh-huh. wide spectrum, but jazz is and and funk and and it's not my wheelhouse. I'm not super comfortable with it. So I'm hoping to learn well, some from you. Okay. Well, maybe I can. Uh you know bring some uh enlightenment through some history or you know of new orleans music and how it kind of developed well i do want uh, yeah i don't want to influence first, had on me yeah well that's what that's exactly what i want to talk about first is, is how you got into drumming uh was drumming what you started off doing um and how old were you when you started playing music well um i guess I kind of started off playing on it. We had a little uh, plastic Magnavox organ with a push-button white and black keys on the left side and little small keys. Okay. I think I was probably three or four when I, I, you know, I recall paying attention to that and learning songs. And I, I learned like uh, I remember learning the the uh, Marines Battle Hymn of the Republic. I guess it is. Yeah. Uh, for my dad. My dad was uh, a, a veteran of World War II, uh, a Marine. Oh, wow. And, uh, so I recall doing that. That was some of the first stuff I did, you know, and I was kind of learning, teaching myself a little bit out of this big note songbook. <laughs> and then, uh, and uh, but I do recall um, being at a Mardi Gras parade, and my mom was holding me up so I could see the parade. So I must have been very young. And when the drum section came by, or the marching bands, uh, I just, you know, was enthralled by the by the sound and the power of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you ever been to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, the, the, the marching bands down here, they're not, they sound different than, uh, like I say, a marching band from the Midwest or whatnot, mm-hmm. due to, to the heavy uh, rhythmic influences, uh, really from Africa and the Caribbean, that, you know, have influenced New Orleans music for, um, I gotta say, probably centuries at this point. Yeah, yeah. Was your family musical? I mean, you said your dad was a marine, but did they? Did he play uh, an instrument? Yeah, was no, your mom uh, musical? Yeah, you know they they uh, encouraged it. They uh, had an older brother and sister that you know were teenagers when the when the uh, early teenagers when the Beatles came out. Okay. So uh, yeah, so they had records left over from that, and I, you know, so I got a lot of experience through that. But just being in New Orleans, and um, there was a, a church not far from my house where they'd have second lines, and, and just you know, I guess growing up and hearing the music constantly uh, had an impact. Okay, that that brings me to my first question because you've actually uh, written on this subject, and what is a second line? Okay, um, well, you know, there's a couple of definitions for it, and from what I. I one of my, my great teachers, Vernal Fournier, great New Orleans drummer, that uh, made some noise in the jazz world when I took a lesson with him. He talked about the old days before, you know, radio that have the promoters of a dance, per se, in, in, uh, happening somewhere, okay. would hire the band and they would go from neighborhood to neighborhood and play. And it would, people would fall in behind them and dance their way to the establishment where the dance was taking place. Ah. And, they were called the second line, the second liners. And so it's, it's not a particular type of dance. It's, it's as individual kind of dancing as anyone could possibly do. You know, it doesn't okay. matter what, how you express it. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing. And 
Also, the other definition is for the jazz funerals, one that have a brass band and the cough and, and the coffin first, I guess, and the brass band. And no, actually, I'm sorry. The, the band was first when I when I did them anyway. Okay. And uh, behind the the coffin were the the, the the mourners, people, and they were considered to be in the second line as well. Uh-huh. And then after the burial, um, when they would leave, they'd go to a, a repass or a you know a function afterwards, where there'd be food and stuff. Then they would second line. They would the band would kick up a uh, a faster tune then when they go to the you know, back up a little bit when they go to the cemetery they would play a dirge yeah slow dirge march like a closer walk with thee and then when they would leave they would kick it up and play something like uh didn't he ramble or you know you hear the snare you know that, okay. that kind of a groove yeah and then so they would sort of repass at that tempo and people would dance but like Vernell was saying you know he said people didn't really dance uh, you know like all out due to the, due to the uh, circumstances right he said right. but you know there was all, like one guy that would be like going crazy or something <laughs> 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 that was always that one guy yeah, there's that one guy. But, Usually uh, me. Yeah, so that's kind of the history of it in the second line. And it's it's grooves that are derived from um, the African and Caribbean influences that came into New Orleans, um, you know, centuries ago. And has evolved over time um, to where, you know, we have uh, the, the African-American community in New Orleans now. And years ago, they started... You know, I guess following the Civil War, they started social aid and pleasure clubs okay. to take care of uh, the communities, you know, for insurances and burials. And so it was a socially knit, you know, close knit uh, communities all around the city. And they would have uh, Mardi Gras Indians. It was a big connection with the, the uh, Native American Indians here in Louisiana with the African Americans. Okay. And so we have these. Uh, the Mardi Gras Indian tribes, which some of them were famous, said, you know, they always have uh, bands and stuff. I think in the 70s was when uh, they first, uh, a guy named uh, Willie T, Willie, William Turbington, put together uh, a funk group. He was a keyboardist uh, behind the Mardi Gras Indians, which is mostly the percussion instruments and call and response kind of songs. Oh, okay. And uh, he. He put together those first recordings, I think, in the 70s, and then it's evolved into, uh, you know, many different aspects of uh, presenting that style. But you could hear, uh, like, the Wild Magnolias, the Wild Chapatulas. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, so, so those groups are, you know, Bull Dallas and the Wild Chapatulas is probably the most famous. And that was the original recordings they did in the 70s with him. Oh, uh, okay, They okay. toured quite quite a lot yeah I played some gigs with them along the way I heard I heard about that so when did you start playing professionally how old were you oh I was probably I think um, well high school we had a band and um, you know we played little block parties and stuff okay make like 20 or 30 (laughs) (laughs) but uh, probably you know when I was 16 17 and then um, 
you know, uh, I got, I think I was about 18 when I, I landed a little gig in a hotel here, a five night a week country and western gig. Oh, wow. And yeah, and uh, did that and then went on to Bourbon Street and played in clubs up and down Bourbon Street while I was going to college. And then uh, we would get house gigs. At that time, there were, there were a lot of house gigs, five nights a week, six nights a week. Okay. Then we have gigs, late night gigs from 2 a.m. to 6 6 a.m. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, you know, coming up, I mean, at, at times, I think my record was uh, 11 gigs in three days. Oh, my God. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, because I do the late night gigs and I have a brunch, you know, and then I go play a wedding and then a, a, a afternoon party and then a gig at night and then, you know, get up the next day. Oh, my just, God. You know, it used to be crazy. Like, yeah, yeah the work, there was so much that's awesome though that, so, that's pretty wild that's a I, I, I can't even imagine yeah, it. I, can't. I mean <laughs> it's a lot of playing yeah I mean that's like running like different groups too. it's not the same group it's all different different stuff god I mean and I, I mean playing drums for that long I mean I, I imagine doing a, a normal gig is like running a marathon you're like running a marathon for three days straight yeah I was a lot younger then though <laughs> <laughs> But nowadays, like before the lockdown, you know, I've been playing little gigs down in New Orleans and stuff and for tourists. And there are long gigs, you know, six-hour gigs. God. Sometimes I do a double, 10 hours, 12 hours, same club one time, you know. And uh, But I'm grateful for it because uh, that's how I put this record out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I imagine. I, I want to find out about... Yeah some of these amazing people that you've played with because I was looking at a, a very what I'm sure is a sh very short list and oh, some, yeah. some of these guys are, it's not, that's not yeah, some <laughs> of these guys are amazing like like Gatemouth Brown Tab, uh, Tab Benoit yes. uh, Wolfman Washington uh -huh. that's just uh, these guys yeah, are all, legendary that's yeah, all lies so I didn't really do that oh okay <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I hope you're listening. Best lies but, uh, ever. Yeah, I, I have had the honor of playing with all those people. That's got to be uh, insane. Yeah, and, and a few others. Yeah, I spent some time on the road with, you know, uh, Henry Butler, for instance, who's an incredible pianist yeah. in New Orleans. He just recently passed away outside. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he had a uh, stomach cancer. But, yeah, I, I did some with him and um, Papa Molly. I guess those were the last two people I've been out with. But I, I've mostly been staying close to home. But it was a real treat playing with all those folks in one form or another. Most of those gigs were road gigs. Yeah. And um, yeah, what it was, you know, you got to have some incredible I love that kind of life. You got to have some great stories then. Well, stories about I being on the road it. with a gate mouth. I mean, that's that's to me that's amazing. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, gate mouth. We once uh, I was playing with uh, a, a singer here in New Orleans, Juanita Brooke, and she um, we had a, a little um, tour in, on, in Europe, and so we got on a bus. It's one of those summer tours. They line up for New Orleans musicians all the time, right? And there were five bands on the bus. And I wasn't playing with Gate at this time, but Gate's band was on the bus. We had the Harlem All-Stars from New York City. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that, their average was probably about 80. 
you know, they were, they were, they had played with Billy Holiday and Count Basie wow. and all these people. And, uh, and so we we're all on the bus and we had a brass band from New Orleans too. Big Al Carson was playing sousaphone. And, uh, he's kind of a legend down here now. He's just, he, he doesn't do that anymore. He just sings and entertains. Okay. But, uh, yeah, we we're on the bus and, you know, slow down okay everybody off the bus in the restaurant okay everybody back on the bus and you know we're talking about i don't know 35 40 people and Gosh. so gate now band starts to move like we're cattle you know like Ooh, <laughs> mm. you know when the bus would slow down and all and gate mouth went back and said i thought knocked out knocked out to move it off well need might think you're moving that off I mean, it was kind of a big girl, you know, but, but that's what what was not what it was about. But by this time, man, all the uh, Harlem All Stars started doing it. Oh. The 80-year-olds, <laughs> they couldn't say anything. <laughs> they couldn't say anything. So, so man, the whole tour, like every time you'd hear the motor, mm, <laughs> you'd hear, ooh, ooh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty funny. Oh my god! I ran gosh. into that guitar player Al Casey uh, like a year later in yeah. New York, you know, and and uh, he, you know, he was old. He didn't quite remember me. And I'm like, yeah, man, I was on the Moon Tour with you. I was like, oh yeah, that's right, <laughs> the Moon Tour. <laughs> the vodka in the airport. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's just one. Oh but, man, uh, I'm gonna have to resurrect yeah. a Moo tour somehow. The Moo tour, yeah. That's and a then when I, I got back. We got back to the states, and I got in. And uh, I was playing an original band from New Orleans, Tribe Nunzio. Two days later, I jumped in the vehicle, and we're driving out to Colorado to play. Oh, we stop on the side of the road. There's this huge valley with thousands of cows, and. I don't know. I was just, you know, I was still doing the cow thing. So <laughs> I did a couple of things. <laughs> and next thing you know, there's like thousands of cows running towards us. All of them moving and everything. I'm like, this is crazy, man. Oh, my gosh. So we got... <laughs> that's my cow story. That's <laughs> <laughs> the first time I've ever had cow stories on the show. So that's great. Okay. All right. Well, we're the first. Yeah. <laughs> what? At what point did you go from uh, New Orleans and to moving to New York City? Um. Okay. Uh, I was in my twenties. I guess I really kind of started gravitating towards jazz. Okay. More than when I was growing up, it was a bit of rock, and then. Uh, but uh, yeah, I always loved jazz, and I met uh, I met a, a friend of mine who worked at a record store, and he started a little older guy, my friend Dale Peterson, and he uh, started turning me on to you know all the greats, and so uh, I started learning about it. And then uh, I went to University of New Orleans and uh, studied with Charles Blanc, who uh, I played in their jazz bands there, and kind of got my introduction to jazz drumming and what I needed to do to develop that ability to okay. express yourself that, you know, right. what it all meant. So, uh, you know, I always thought of going to New York City because I was, you know, the jazz capital in a sense. And uh, mm -hmm. so I eventually just 
um, oh yeah, it's on the road with a couple of friends and we're like, is this it, man? This is what we got to look forward to. And <laughs> some Kansas City, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. We were young and had big, you know, ambition. But, uh, so my friend Rick, uh, and I, we got back to New Orleans and we applied to William Patterson College. Uh, and um, I got accepted. It was a, it's a limited uh, study program up there. Rufus Reed was a department head. Okay. It's right outside of New York City. So um, my friend Rick ended up not going. He, he ended up in New York later, played with Miles Davis, with, uh, you know, oh, Mark wow. Gibson. But uh, I went and studied there and got a degree in jazz studies at William Patterson and had my introduction to New York City. Oh, uh, and uh, it was cool. And then uh, after I got out of school, went on on a road with a touring band, you know, a top 40 touring band. And then ended up back in New Orleans, uh, ended up in Miami for a while, playing with some friends down there, back in New Orleans. Uh, went back to New York. Uh, I was living up there and I got a little State Department gig in uh, Thule, Greenland. Oh, wow. Which was uh, the top of the world, man. It's like 600 miles from the North Pole. And oh. it was in January. Oh. There was no sun. For like two oh. weeks and uh, i got back to new york and i was staying at my, my buddy's house the pianist out in jersey and my roommate in new york calls me walter uh says hey don't bother to come back to the apartment because i didn't renew the lease and we've been robbed oh jeez! <laughs> so, so i lost uh, one of those you know new york stories i lost all my stuff oh. so I, yeah I, I came back to new orleans and uh uh you know, and continued to have things stolen from me. Oh, Jesus! Period. And and uh, yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, ended up joining a uh, a band called Tribe Nunzio in New Orleans. Just played with them for about three years. And, okay. Uh, and aside from that, doing it was all original band. And aside from that, doing other little gigs. And uh, that was really rewarding. It was a, a band, you know, and. Up until that point, I never, I never really was in a band, per se. It was always like a gig, you know. Okay. And I'm playing this, these people, or playing that music with those people, and you're playing the gig or whatever. This was a band. We're writing music together. We're traveling together. We're, you know. Yeah, you're not just supporting somebody else. Yeah, I found that to be very rewarding, and I, I mean, I like both worlds, but. I like that. So I always try to have my own band to, to do that, you know. And, uh, but so, it's hard because some players are good players are busy. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, it's sometimes hard <laughs> That's a to... a good point. You know, yeah. <laughs> you don't want somebody just sitting around because chances are he's not very good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. What year are oh, you? When was that? that was yeah. Like, oh, man, I hate to say it. That was like... It was like 25 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this a long time, man. <laughs> that's, that's good. It means but, you're uh, good. Yeah. You're well, not one of those guys sitting around. Yeah, you're not one of those guys sitting yeah. around doing nothing. <laughs> no. Not the rest of the time, yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I wanted to go back to New York, and I did on that point. But after that uh, little experience with the, the robbery, I came back here. And, and I ended up joining those guys and you know I was kind of discouraged about the jazz world and and this band uh, the Tribe Nunzio band was, was pretty popular we had a really uh, fantastic uh, uh, female singer uh, that okay. was a great performer as well and 
they had a good following and just the energy of people dancing and really you know putting on shows yeah was that's what i really loved and you know it's not like you're playing in some restaurant where you background music right is and, that um, what was discouraging you about the the jazz world or was there something else that was going on? Thing, it's something yeah, it's you know it's i mean don't get me wrong i mean it's you know this incredible music coming out of jazz players and yeah then again not incredible too the ones that listen can play you know but uh i um I just found it sometimes to kind of be stale and you know I guess you study a style for so long and okay this is what it is and you've got that and I want something new I want to keep moving yeah you know? well <laughs> like that... my, I'm not stuff like to Miles Davis but you know in a sense that that's what he did you know he kept changing evolving the musical styles of exactly that he was into exactly so that's what I'm trying to do and you know with the satira phone uh, I'm trying to bring all kinds of elements together um, and uh, hopefully it melds together well I definitely I want to ask you about this too about the, the band so how did you meet up with the, the band so there's uh, the, the the core is you on drums uh, bassist, yes. Ver- bassist Vernon Rome and cellist Will mm-hmm. Snowden yes all right. Yeah. So the first question I have um, for, for you is, what what is Junko beat? What does that mean? Okay. Um, well, there's a, a song uh, that was around New Orleans called Junko Partner. Okay. You know, Dr. John put it on his uh, gumbo record. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, James Booker played it as well. It's actually a song about a junkie. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I lived in New York. I had a band called Junko Partners. Well, we were playing a club, and the guy that booked us and all that comes back and says, "Okay, you bunch of junkies, I want you to do a great <laughs> show out there tonight." And uh, we're like, "Okay, but we're not junkies, but okay, we'll do a great show." <laughs> but, uh, so I decided to. When I came back to New Orleans, I decided to change the name and put the connotation on the beat. Right. Um, <laughs> Junko beat, you know, and it's kind of referring to the swagger of New Orleans kind of rhythms, you know. Okay. But I've later found out that it's actually a a, a female name, uh, a Japanese name for women. Oh, really? And, yeah, and it's ironic because the way junk, Junko beat is like it's based on what I like to call the mother beat, which is a. Okay. And it, that it is in every culture in the world. Oh, really? Every, every culture has that rhythm. And, oh, wow. Uh, some people say it's half clave or, you know, the clave is a... And that that's, you know, Afro-Cuban music, Cuban music. But okay. The rhythm also made it to New Orleans. But in New Orleans, they swing the beat a little more than with the the this Latinos would play they play it more straight. You okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, went to it in New Orleans. Um but yeah, so so the mother beat and a lot of my grooves uh come out of that rhythm. And you know, there's different oh, cool. rhythms that you can layer on top of that. So that's pretty much how a lot of the 
the funk came about, you know. See, I said, see, you were worried you didn't have anything you did t- that you could teach me. Oh, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so how did you, how did you end up meeting Vernon and Will? Okay, well, Vernon um, was in Tribe Nuncio. Okay, okay. And um, yeah, so way back, we've been best, you know, bestest of friends but since those days. And uh, he went on to take a job with the State Highway Department. And so he's, um, you know, left the, the New Orleans scene. When I moved to, uh, let me back up a little bit. When I moved to New York City, the band was still going. I left the band for various reasons. Okay. And they continued on for a couple of years, I think. And then it, it folded and he went to work for them. But when I came back to New Orleans, uh, you know, we got together and played some music and, you know, enjoy it. And so he started uh, working on bass and I met Will. Um, I was, my niece was interested in playing cello. So I, I have an old friend who's a Luther here in New Orleans. So Ooh. I went to visit him to see if I could get a cello. And Will was in there trying to get his cello fixed. And I said, no, I need a cello player. And he said, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah. And he was a, a public defender in, in Orleans Parish at that time. Oh, wow. And yeah, he's a smart dude, man. He now he works for uh he's doing um uh justice advocacy nationwide. Oh wonderful non profit so yeah, yeah, so heavy dude. That's but, um, fantastic. you know, he's got a yeah, he's got a flexible schedule, so we go on the road sometimes, you know, and, and although we hadn't been out in a couple of years I guess. Okay. But hopefully that's gonna change soon. Well yeah, hopefully, hopefully this record will so when when you really guys get out there a little bit, yeah, hopefully things open up a bit too, I and mean, that that would help out a lot. Too. Yeah, forever. yeah. So when you guys yeah. start got together to just I guess feel each other out, did you have an idea of the sound you wanted, or did it just kind of spring up organically? Um, well, I kind of had a sound in my head, and. You know, I have a, a studio in my house, and I'll, I'll do demos, and then pass it on. Okay. And write tunes, and you know, the way I, I like to write is, it's like, um, it's kind of like chapters. A song is like has chapters mm-hmm. in it, and not always. And some sections will be open, like, you know, there's not you're off the charts in a sense. Okay. And then a melody might might introduce be introduced which is like a cue for the next section so just kind of learn these melodies and it's really like i'm trying to have it be free and open so people can play their instruments and improvise and Mm -hmm. so we have we're playing live and that necessarily happens so much on the record but live we do more of that and then but then we you know have uh composed sections so it doesn't just hopefully sound like a, you know, free fiasco jam <laughs> session. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> goes on for yeah, it's 45 kind of minutes. And- aimlessly wandering around. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I remember I played a gig here in New Orleans with some friends of mine and we started playing and we didn't know what we were going to play. We just started jamming in oh, this club wow. and we the same song for 45 minutes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. That could that could go either way. That could be amazing or just a train wreck. Yeah. 
I think it was pretty cool, though. I think it, you know, people people got going. <laughs> well, if you know, one thing that I've I've uh, noticed that we, I've had a couple people on who said they they've done stuff like that. Like uh, I had Trey Gunn on, and they said that when they did the uh, King Crimson, the improv stuff, they wouldn't. That was uh-huh. legitimately improv, and he said sometimes it was great, sometimes it was it was terrible, but. I found that if yeah. you're, if you're competent at, <laughs> at your instrument, a lot of times it'll, it'll be at least listenable. So it, it usually goes yeah. goes off the rails when somebody has just gets completely lost. Yeah, that would happen. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, that would happen. But uh, you know, it's the whole trick is listening and fitting in. Yes. Yeah. You know? God, it's like Rufus Reed would say, man, when I was in school, you know, it's just 75% of your attention should be on listening and 25% on what you're actually playing. Uh, that's that's good. That way, that's you, good. Yeah, good. And it's like a conversation, you know, you can't, if, if four people are talking and having a back and forth and everybody has a, a, a window to speak and all, and then all of a sudden somebody comes up and starts you know, oh, what are y'all talking about? And then just ramrods a conversation, and you know, does anybody can't get a word in, and you know, they're yeah. just rambling on and on. It all and goes south. You know, walk away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the same with music. You know, it's just that's just kind of how it works. And you know, jazz is is beautiful like that because you know you get that interaction, and um, you know, so you you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I recall. Uh, uh, we were playing, um, Tribe Nuncio used to do that a lot. We'd go off sometimes, and we were playing a gig in um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Oh. And they were having a, a Native American uh, show, like a product show or a trade show. Okay. And they all came into the to the club that night, and they were dancing, you know, in, in front of the band. And Vernon who is part American Indian, all of a sudden he goes up to the mic and he starts like, hey, no, no, hey, no, no, hey. Oh. I, I don't know what he was doing. Wow. But, you know, I mean, some kind of Indian chant or something. Yeah. You know? And the Indians were going, and we all looked at each other and said, well, I, I guess we got to go with him. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, quite the character, man. John Magny, uh, he, he did some work with. I don't know if you know the Subdudes. Yeah, those, yeah. Those guys. Yes. Yeah, from New Orleans, but they're friends of ours. And and John Magny was like, yeah, that guy. He's a he's the closest thing that pure animal that I've ever seen in a wow. musician. Oh man, <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Well, that explains some of the yeah, some yeah. of the great music now. The, the Satira Funk is the second album by Junko Beat. That's correct, yeah. And it took... The first one is... Uh, but, oh, I was going to say, this one took two years to record. Was that... Was, that, was everybody just busy, or were you guys just playing out that much? What was, what was going on? What, why did it take two years? Well, um, we... Uh, that's a good question. Let me try to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the song kind of grew, you know. They kind of came together here and came together there. And, you know, we played them live. And some of them developed a little bit here, a little bit there. We went in the studio. We cut a couple of songs. Um, 
you know, and I take it home and, you know, maybe maybe do some old dubs and, you know, some uh, another song would come up and I'd work on that. And so, you know, I guess the thing was too that, you know, we we had a run there where we were, we were going out on the road a bit, and like up until a couple of years ago, and I just started staying in New Orleans and and playing other uh, little gigs okay. around town, and uh, you know, kind of getting my studio settled and and all that, and um, yeah. so life, you know, things happen. Oh and, yeah, you know, that's part of that was a big part of it too, to be honest. Okay. Uh, but I'm so happy. I mean, I, I thought I was going to have this thing out last summer. And, oh, wow. Uh, oh, yeah. So I, I, I've learned to be patient. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not ready. So, but, you know, I know we had to, you know, slow down with the, you know, the COVID thing. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I had it slated to come out right during the Jazz and Heritage Festival here in New Orleans. And, oh. um, yeah, so all that got, you know, nixed. And yeah. I just went down to the record store today, and the two that are in New Orleans and dropped off some LPs. But, you know, there's nobody in the stores. Nobody's yeah. on the street. I know. It's yeah, and crazy. Then, yeah, and then we have all this craziness going on with the, the, the rioting and all yeah. the looting. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's scary stuff. People from bed, yeah. So, so, so you know, we so get <laughs> Well, the first album, Gem Chronic. Gem Chronic, yeah. Yeah, and then you have Satyrafunk. Did you approach the album, Satyrafunk, differently than the first album? Was there, or, or is it just a continuation of the band and progressing yeah. of its sound? Yeah, it's a continuation. Okay. Basically, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I kind of just, I'm always just trying to write and you know produce songs record i mean i have stuff in the can that i don't even know how to release because it's not really in the john i would say it wouldn't be in a genre of a junko beat kind of vibe oh uh, wow so it's sitting you know local tunes and stuff they're just kind of sitting there oh um, should, and i'm not really <laughs> you not should, really a great vocalist so you should put it up on Bandcamp. Um, yeah well we have a website now Awesome. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I guess, you know, years ago I thought, man, if I could just make a bunch of records and when I get older, you know, I might have something to fall back on. Right. And, uh, you know, right. So then, <laughs> you know, Napster came out and all this streaming and now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that you know, doesn't work anymore. Cool. Yeah. So and, I don't know. I got my own website up now and, uh, uh, I put the the Sagittaria Funk and the Jam Chronic album up there, and uh, I also produced some uh, records for a great jazz tenor saxophonist here in New Orleans, uh, Frederick Shepard, Shep, as okay. everyone knew him. And we recorded some songs uh, after Katrina. I think it was in 2006. Yeah. And unfortunately, he passed away three weeks following oh, the recording. Gosh. Wow. Yeah, it was hard. Man, and it took me a year of just you know anguish, and uh, it takes it takes a long time. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I started doing a lot of the mixing myself. You know, oh, after really? mixing with some real, yes, with with some really great mixers that uh, taught me uh, amazing amount of things, like a guy named David Farrell here in New Orleans. 
especially him and my friend Craig Bishop in New York, you know, so they, they kind of, kind of got trained on the job. Yeah. And, uh, I, I don't know, even when I started on a four track, when I was living in New York city in the nineties, I started, you know, my first record on a four track and I always got the comments from people like, yeah, you could, that's a good ear. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I got good encouragement, you know? So I don't yeah. know. I've always been into, into the tape machines when I was a kid. I remember my uncle had one with three heads where you get echoes on and stuff. Oh, wow. I was always messing around. Oh, that's stuff cool. like that, you know. So did, did you guys record so, this band, this album yourself then, and and work on it yourself? Uh, mostly yes. Oh, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> mostly, yeah. Well, um, like for instance, uh, Lotus Rising. Yes. That's a live cut in in, in my friend's studio. Wow. Um, Abadash Studios. to Golden Green that's that's like half studio half live oh I, I love merged that them to, I merged them together so oh, I don't know listen to the things you hear where the sound changes that's awesome I didn't even realize that Cause that song I love how that song just builds that that is such a great track oh yeah thank you thank you yeah yeah I also now, so I, uh, yeah I also love Land of Milk and Honey because that that to me sounds a little bit like like late 60s psychedelic gets in there Along with the the, the yeah the yeah, like, yeah like traffic remember traffic yes exactly low, the yes. high hill boys. Yeah, yeah the low spark of high yeah. hill boys yeah crazy man what a what a crazy tune because you know I mean I I had the rhythm track with the with the um with the sitar sounds yep that I, I got off my you know off my keyboard uh, I make a lot of loops and samples and stuff. So I had okay. that, and then I put down some drums and stuff, and one night I'm sitting around, and I don't know, I just, let me go upstairs and turn something on, and I turn on my keyboard, and I played that solo, that Moog solo. Oh, like, wow. Seven minutes later, okay, done. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing, man. I don't know how I did that, you know. That but is cool. The move is, is an instrument. So thank you for that, man. I'm trying to do a trance kind of, you know, land of milk and honey, man. We finally made it. It, you know? it worked because that's a that's one of my favorite tracks off the album. And now, a couple of the tracks have vocals like like that. And, and does. The vocals of Jane Brody. Does she write the lyrics yes. herself, or uh, is she just oh, singing lyrics that somebody uh, else wrote? 
she is a songwriter in her own right and, and okay. has uh, some stuff up. But um, no, she, um, the, I wrote the tunes. I wrote those tunes. Uh, I love the way she interpreted them. Um, That's cool. Oh, you know, wow. Basically, uh, you know, yeah, I, I did the lyrics and, um, you know, the basic melodies of, of them and then, you know, came up with the background ideas. Oh, so I had yeah. several people see. Yeah. A few other people did the uh, leads, but uh, she did it the best, I thought. And, so I really appreciate it. Who else is guesting on the album? Because you've got some great guitar work on there and you've got some really wild percussion going, too. So, uh, And I believe there's a pedal steel. Am I wrong on that? Yeah, uh huh, uh huh. Pedal steel um, on Lotus Rising. That's Dave Easley. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he had some kind of little uh, gadget that he made it sound more like a sitar. Okay. But, yeah, yeah. guy's incredible. It's like, you know, he's on a level like a Pat Metheny or somebody, man. man. Just like playing some amazing stuff. He, and uh, so I'm always glad to have him on the band. Um, who else was in there? I had a, a, a bass player, Chris uh, Cenac, uh, who we played some gigs together in New Orleans uh, on the record on a, on a tune. Okay. Uh, I think one or two tunes. Yeah. Chris Cenac hey. and Chris Lackanac. Hey. You know, that's the, the bass. And then I had, um, I had uh, Brian Charette, Who's a, a friend of mine from when I knew uh, from when I lived in New York. He's a great uh, keyboardist, organist, um, internationally known. Hammond B three downbeat old guy. Oh wow! And I got him to do some synthesizer on uh, control, and then he played some organ on um, uh, words, the two vocal tunes. Okay, yeah. And um, yeah, and my other friend Nate played some keyboards. And uh, Ian, uh, Ian Cunningham, uh, is a really good funk guitarist. He's he's not doing the chicken picking on on, on the record. Okay, okay. And, uh, so yeah, I just brought different people in, you know, like, and and I was trying to get this one guitar part on control, and it just wasn't really coming out. So I, I finally just I called my friend Mark Trinacosta, who I knew could get these sounds, and that's when he came in and and. Uh, he did a fantastic job on you know the song didn't really need a solo it needed some kind of you know blasting sound I thought and, yeah and he, he delivered oh you know on that guitar it's just the one thing one chord yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that man I like that um was a Smith had a song Meat is Murder yeah I don't know if you ever heard that yes that's uh, that guitar sound yeah you know and I really started Johnny getting into the whole sound well, I'm sorry say that Johnny Moore sound yes yes but um, I, I when I lived in New York I started playing in a, the second band of my life and that would be um, I mean excluding any high school stuff right uh, fan, a band called Family of God um, oh, yeah. With a guy named Adam Peters, who was from uh, Echo and the Bunnymen's, and uh, and John Carruthers, the guitarist from Susie and the Banshees. Oh, uh, yeah. All English guys. Yeah, I ran into these guys in New York. Somebody gave my name, and they called me up. So, oh, wow. We did some, yeah, we did some records.
That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a pretty cool band. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And uh, I learned a lot from Adam. He's, you know, he had a great work ethic, you know. 10 a.m., he's in the studio. He works all day. And, uh, you know, I'd go down and put some drums down for him and stuff. But that was back in the day of uh, ADATs. Oh, you know, okay. Before the computer. Yes. Yeah. In the 90s. And um, so, you know, <laughs> you didn't have all that digital editing, man. You got to lay it down and lay it down right. Yeah. Oh, so, man. I've always tried strive to get my playing to that level. Yeah, and you, know. you had limited number of tracks you could use. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So yeah, the first record I did, uh, Primatica, I called it, um, was done on a ADAT, carrying it around New York City to people's houses. Like, hey, can you put this part on for me? Oh wow, <laughs> man! Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of you know. It's, it's just a lot of fun, man. You know, you get to hang out and create music and sounds. And, so with the way recording is now, and, and you, you basically do it in your house, is, is it harder to edit stuff? Because I know when you when you have limited number of tracks, at some point you're just kind of like, all right, that's enough. If, if I'm going to do any more, I've got to actually take things out because I don't have any more room. Now you can layer thing, you know, drums upon drums upon drums. Is it does it get harder for you to to edit um no it's actually easier to edit now i mean with the with the way the screens are set up you okay know. um but you know personally I, I like not to have to edit right yeah i can imagine yeah but you know <laughs> but i do <laughs> for instance, you know, where would you go in the green from a, a studio version to a live version, you know? That's true. And uh, I, I read some stuff about, you know, um, you know, some Miles Davis records and stuff and how they did all this editing and everything on those jazz records. I'm thinking, well, wait, if, if they, you know, can get away with doing that, then, you know, ultimately, you know, you want to get a the best performance you can and get this the spirit on tape or yeah hard drive whatever you put into <laughs> yeah. but the, the, the feeling of you know that's what com- to me that's what comes through you know you can have mistakes or whatever but uh, hopefully you know not blaring but that's what you need to get on the tape when it's magic and yeah. you can feel that when you're recording so once that's done though as a producer you want to make the best sounding record you can. So there's a lot of tools you can use mm-hmm. to kind of enhance the actual sound of the instruments, of course, and how it all comes together. So, so you know, if somebody played a wrong note that sticks out, well, you just take it out. Yeah, that's a lot easier now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I really love the album. I mean, and I, I listen to Jam Chronic too. And I, what I love about the band is that the music is energetic, but it's not like heavy. You know, it's not like you know, like a, a metal album where it's energetic just because it's yeah. furious. It's just it's energetic, yeah. but it's it's it doesn't have uh, you know that heaviness that, that you don't always want. I mean, particularly for me on, on Jim Chronic tracks like Fatima.
album Afterburn. I love Afterburn. I think is my favorite track on the on the album. Cool, man. And yeah, I went out on that one, man. On the chorus, I, I, I like got the. It's probably eleven different instruments in there. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. You can't really decipher all of them because they're all mixed, you know. That's but awesome. I just wanted that all boom. Yeah, you know? yeah, but it, so. it's not like it's not like um, an overwhelming. I don't feel like you know if you listen to, I don't know. I'll, I'll just throw out something like like Tool or or some heavier band. It just sounds yeah. too like it, it sounds oppressive almost. It's heavy. You're, you're it almost like you're weighed down by it. it's. It's not because you guys keep that a groove going with it. It's not just pummeling you. Yeah. That's I think you, yeah you hit it on the head because it's the it's the underlying rhythm you know the African sensibilities and the yeah Afro Caribbean sensibilities and in, in the rhythms that you know and the bass that is laying everything down and you know plus I don't have that guitar right you right know, those groups they have the heavy metal guitar the you know heavy sounding guitars I, I didn't really use a, a, the only song I used that on was uh, in Control. Yeah, and it wasn't real. Yeah, I did put some fuzz guitar in um, Afterburn though. Okay. Yeah, and it's, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's not it's, mixed in there. Yeah, and it's not it's not you know that that super heavy bombastic stuff. It, it's it's very tasteful, and it, it you know it's it's not there to be the focus. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Where can um, you know? I, I learned a lot of that from from my friend Adam Peters. You know. Oh, okay. Um, he dealt with sounds and stuff, and you know, he's uh, you know, he was kind of like he was a prodigy, man. A guy, I think when he was eighteen, he uh, he wrote and and conducted uh, part of the London Philharmonic for that record, Ocean Rain. Oh my that, god! Um, was a big record for uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, and. Um, so you know he he was going out on his own with his his partner lyricist Chris Brick, <clears throat> and uh, we did some good shows. You know we had a good little run, but I don't know, man. It, it, we had uh, the big wigs from the big record companies come to a show, and Adam had laryngitis and tried uh. to get a steroid and make the gig and crack, uh. and they said nah. And then the wind went out of the sails, man, and pretty soon, you know. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it it really did suck. So there's there's about two, I guess, three records out. that They had a record out before I joined them that just Adam produced himself. And then I think the two records I was participating in along with uh, the rest of the band members. That was a fun band, man. It was like it was like a band, you know, with yeah. rehearse, go out babies, as they would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I, I noticed something, and I want to ask you about this real, real quick, because uh, I've, I've, I've kept you almost an hour at this point, so I don't want to, I don't want to take your entire night. But I did see that that you've been involved with several musicals and reviews, and one was called Always Patsy. What was, what is that about? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Always Patsy was a a, a show about Patsy Cline, oh, and it was uh, portrayed by uh, you know a woman playing Patsy, Margaret Bolton, who she's incredible, man. She just did an incredible job. She was on San Francisco, and Carolyn, which which played the part, uh, her best friend, 
well, I say best friend, but a friend that she had met on the, when she was traveling and they kept in touch their whole lives. Okay. So she kind of foiled Patsy and, and we were in the, you know, it's like a country band and my friend Dave easily was playing pedal steel. Oh, I'm they... like, Hey man, you want to come play on my record? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I... I got a gig next week. You want to come play? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, I, I love doing that, man. It just hit people. They're like, yeah, I need, you know, like, like, uh, Jenna McSwain, man. I met her at a, a I was teaching a sub substituting uh for somebody at a music school and she came walking up and she's like yeah i just moved here not long ago blah 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 blah. she had a master's in jazz studies and all oh, wow play keyboard. i need a keyboard player yeah Once, come on <laughs> <laughs> played some amazing stuff on uh on uh jam chronic you know okay and okay. uh once she got to to be known around New Orleans now, she's doing all the, the Swank Hotel gigs and stuff, playing jazz. You know. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. So she and teaching at the university, and you know, so oh, she's. Really? Yeah, it took her a minute, but you know, yeah, she really did well here. She went to uh, school in Green Greeley, Colorado, studied out there. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I and well, I had to ask about always Patsy because I live in Winchester, Virginia, so that's that the home of Patsy Klein. So I got I had to ask. Oh, Oh, Winchester. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that's where she was from. Yeah, yeah. They've she's everywhere here. They've got a museum. They've got her her wow. house is a historic building here. It's it's been restored. She's everywhere. Okay. Well, yeah. The show always Patsy. You know that was a, a guy named Sweeney. I think wrote it, and it, it plays in different cities. I'm going to have to check you know, that out. I'm, I did it twice, actually. Um, oh, cool. It was at the, the World War II Museum here. Oh, okay. Um, cool. They had a little showroom, and they would, you know, they put on reviews or shows. I, I did, I said for my friend there once, and it was all kind of freaked out, you know, when I went <laughs> in. I, I, was, I, mean, I did it, but I sight-read the show. Oh, and, wow. Um, and and the direct music the entertainment director was there and she was like oh my god you know you got to do my next show <laughs> so, so i started doing shows there man and you know i, I don't know i did a half dozen of them i guess oh, and then she sounds- left and the whole thing changed and i don't i don't know what's going on over there now but uh man but i'm hoping that you know i can get back on a junko beat train man well let's let's get that going how how can people find the album and and purchase it and help support you uh while everything's still shut down a little bit oh thanks for asking um well we have uh, i have two websites i have junkobeat.com one word j-u-n-k-o-b-e-a-t.com all right and uh that's all about the band and there's links there to the buy page uh, and you can you can download or you could get the Satira Funk LP um, delivered by mail, the 12-inch vinyl, full length, oh, nice. or CD, or CD, or you can just download the whole album. And uh, we are going to release the the song Control as a single. Uh, that's going to probably be out about now. Um, this is six weeks later. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and also uh, Drum Parade Records. Is the, is the drum is a label called uh, one word drum parade records dot com. Awesome. And, um, yeah. So they're there, and um, you'll probably be able to stream the song Control. I really want to get that song out there right now. All right. All right. Well, it, is there a social media presence? Are you on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or anything like that? 
yeah i'm I'm at this point i'll probably have my facebook page worked out yeah awesome there'll be links but if you go to junkobeat.com uh you should you know you you can just follow the links to to all the stuff trying to make a presence out there finally getting it together you know this this time off allowed me to (laughs) to do this because actually before this had happened i was playing so many gigs that i just didn't have time i know the feeling so so that's all i've been doing that with this podcast instead of (laughs) i've been editing but i've been recording so much and and i've I've got quite the backup of people waiting for their episodes to come out so and i release i haven't missed a week but i i just have more shows than i have weeks I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we'll catch up one day, I'm sure. We will. We will. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for spending so much time with me and telling me some awesome stories. They, they were great. Yeah, man. I hope you can use it and, and uh, try to make me look good. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.